Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, our sermon name is called A Faithful Counter Culture. And Pastor Eric will be preaching from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Let's join Pastor Eric now. Amen, Village. Jesus is worthy to receive all our worship this morning, is he not? If we haven't met, uh, my name is Eric. I serve as the adult discipleship pastor here at Village. Uh, Happy rainy 4th of July weekend. Thank you for making it out to be with us. If you've been with us for the past, well, while now, we've been going through uh, the gospel according to Luke and teaching through that verse by verse. And we'll be back in Luke next week, but this morning we're actually going to take a short break from our regularly scheduled series, and we'll be looking at the book of 1 Peter. First Peter. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open there. If you're new to the Bible, you can find First Peter right toward the end, uh, right after the books of Hebrews and James. If you need a Bible, hopefully there's one under the chair in front of you. Our passage is on page 1204 this morning. So First Peter, but before we uh, jump into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the privilege to be with you and with your people this morning. Thank you that you gave your only son for us, Lord, the the lion and the lamb who was slain, and that you are worthy to receive all glory and blessing and honor and praise. God, turn our hearts to you this morning. Uh, Renew us by your spirit, Lord, that we may uh, live faithfully and step with the truth of the gospel, Lord, and give our entire lives to you, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we'll get to our passage in a moment, but as we look at 1 Peter this morning, the question we're going to be exploring is the one that I think uh, the first century apostle Peter is addressing mainly in his letter, and it's this. How do you and I as Christians live faithfully in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture? How do we live faithfully in the midst of a culture that's increasingly opposed to historic Christian beliefs, practices, and especially ethics? If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, another way to rephrase that would simply be to ask, what does a faithful church look look like? What does it look like to faithfully be a gathering of Christians today for us in the 21st century? Does it look primarily like, say, fighting against the culture that's hostile to us or aligning our faith with particular cultural or political agendas in order to try to influence the culture for Christ? Or on the other hand, does it look like trying to assimilate as much as we can to the culture to the point of minimizing Christian distinctives in an attempt to make the gospel message appear more palatable to those outside the walls of a church building? What if, though, living faithfully as followers of Jesus today in the 21st century, Gurney, Illinois, looked like following the radical way of Jesus into a joy-filled, missional counterculture. That's a pregnant sentence, but we'll unpack it as we go, but following the way of Jesus into a joy-filled missional counterculture. Not the culture we're in, but a counterculture. Most of us know something about counterculture. You might think of the 1960s, for example, when there was a counterculture uh, that really had the counterculture thing going, didn't always have the Jesus piece. Uh, But 1963, a great song, an anthem for that counterculture came out, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are a Change In. 
And it was prescient then, I think, and I think it still speaks to where we're at actually today, even as Christians. And Dylan's saying this, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. Some of you classic rock fans got the tune going in your mind right now. You are welcome that I did not sing it. You can thank me later. Just read it for you. The times were changing, Dylan said. You better catch up. You better admit it. Or what? You'll sink like a stone. And the 60s were, of course, a great era of change. But I think many of us sense that today we're living in a similar era of rapid social and cultural upheaval. Just take the church, for example. The church in America, over the past two generations especially, has experienced a series of seismic shifts. It shifted from being at the center of the culture to increasingly being pushed to the margins. It shifted from being a cultural majority, even numerically, to with each passing year becoming more and more of a cultural minority, more and more what the first century Christians were like. The church has seen in the past several generations the rise and fall of major leaders. It's seen scandals of abuse, rank hypocrisy. Scholars say that now we're living in something that people are calling the great de-churching of America. I think today we're in Dylan's proverbial sink or swim moment as the church. So as the culture increasingly opposes historic forms of Christian belief, how will we be faithful not only to survive but even to thrive today? And I don't mean going back to the way things were, but I mean looking forward into a faith-filled future. How can the church thrive? Because I am an unrepentant optimist for the future of the church of Jesus Christ because it's the church of Jesus Christ and we have him behind us. So how can we press forward into faithfulness and fruitfulness? Thankfully, this is not a new question. Uh, the original recipients of the letter of 1 Peter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of first century Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, they were in a situation not entirely different from our own. Christianity for them had never held a place of cultural privilege like it has in our history, but they knew what it was to experience opposition, much more even than you and I do. And so before we look at the passage we're going to be zooming in on, uh, zoom out from the trees for a second and look at the forest with me. Look at some of the ways that Peter describes what Christians he's writing to are going through. He says this, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, they're grieved by various trials. Chapter 2, verse 12, non-Christians consider them Christians to be, quote, evildoers is the word he uses. Later on in that chapter, he says, some of them are suffering unjustly, others are suffering for righteousness' sake. Chapter 3, verse 16, he says they are, quote, slandered and reviled by those around them. Chapter 4, some of them are being insulted for the name of Christ, and the list could go on. In fact, Peter uses the word suffer or suffering 16 times in his letter. It's sort of his major theme. These Christians find themselves in the midst of opposition, and they're facing two threats. On the one hand, some of them are tempted to assimilate to basically be closet Christians, to hide their faith, to try not to look that different from anyone else. Others of them, however, are tempted to fight back. Uh, we see later in chapter 2 that Peter has to tell them to honor the emperor and honor political officials because some of them are saying, hey, if I don't like your politics, I don't have to honor you. And he says, no, you got to do it anyways, basically. 
Some want to assimilate, some want to fight back. Peter points to a different way, though, a more radical way of imitating the life of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to be looking especially at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12, if you want to look there with me. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And let me start by just reading these verses. Peter says, But you, you Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that's for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles there, that's just not literal Gentiles, it's metaphorical. Those outside the faith, those outside the church. Keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the lens we're going to look at this text with is this question that Peter's addressing, how do we live faithfully in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture? And the Apostle Peter is going to give us a series of answers through these verses. And it starts with this. It starts with living with joy. If you want to live faithfully as a Christian today, you have to live with joy. Now, where am I getting that from? Look back at verses 9 and 10 here. Peter essentially riffs on several Old Testament texts. You'll see them there up on the screen. I'm not going to read them all. But he does a sort of Christian remix or a Christian mashup of them. So... For you note-takers, the terms uh, royal priesthood here, holy nation, people for God's own possession, those all come directly from Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6 here. The term chosen race in verse 9 comes from, if you want to write it down to look up later, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20. And then in verse 10, Peter does this remix of a different Old Testament verse, Hosea 2.23. So these verses come from a couple different historical situations, but stick with me here. We're going to zoom out uh, from the forest and go in for the trees for a second, but often the beauty of Scripture is in the trees. These first verses in Exodus 19, this immediately follows the Exodus from Egypt where God parted the Red Sea, and these are actually the first words that God speaks to his people when they show up at Mount Sinai, the very first things God says when they show up at Mount Sinai and he's about to make his covenant with them. Extremely important verses. These later verses in Isaiah and Hosea, in contrast, these ones come from a shared but different historical situation. These both speak to Israel in the context of exile in Babylon. So later in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is in exile in Babylon, and these verses hold out hope for a future redemption of God's people. So what's the point? Well, what I want you to see is Peter takes the series of promises that are originally given to Old Testament Israel, and without flinching, he applies them to a group of what scholars agree is his audience of predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish believers in Jesus. He takes these verses from the Old Testament and just, boom, applies them straight up to his group of Gentile believers, which I think most of us here this morning probably are. So here's what I want you to know. If you are in Christ... All of God's promises, Old and New Testament, are true for you. You are God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his special possession. You have received mercy, 
And what should be the result of that is joy. Joy. Jump back uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at this verse for a second. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Peter says to his hearers, Though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. They're just like us. Even in the first century, they never saw Jesus in the flesh, but they love him. And then he says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and here it is, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's a wonderful little, like, biblical turn of phrase in there, rejoice with joy. It's like, well, yeah, Peter, what else do you rejoice with? (laughs) But he's just piling up the terms. How do you rejoice? You rejoice with joy. What kind of joy? Inexpressible. He can't even quite figure out how to describe it. Why? Because in Christ, we're saved by faith alone through grace alone. And so if you're in Christ, all these descriptors of God's special possession, his chosen race, his royal priesthood, they apply to you. And if we preached hour-long sermons here, which I know many of you are thankful we don't, we could go through each of those terms and all what they mean individually. And we don't have time for that this morning. But the point is this, that in Christ you are God's beloved, his treasure. I want you to think for a moment about the most important thing you own. What if you got a text message right now that said your house was burning down and you only had enough time to drive home and get one thing out of that burning building? What would you get? My daughter, Elsie, our youngest, uh, is two years old and she's got one possession that she prizes above all others. And you can see this sometimes in kids. And the funny thing is, I don't even quite remember where we got this thing or when we bought it or where it came from, but it's this little stuffed, now kind of beat up, pink hippopotamus. And she doesn't want to go anywhere with it, uh, without it. She wants to take it with her. We got to take it on any trip we go on. She wants to sleep with it. And it's not just a hippopotamus to her. She speaks to it in like a different voice than she normally talks. It's her most tender voice. She says, my hippo, daddy, my hippo. And she loves that hippo. And if you take it away, she's just devastated. If you're in Christ by faith, you are God's hippo. And then so much more. <laughs> we paid, I don't know, five, ten bucks for this hippo. But God paid for you with the blood of his own son. And so if you want to live faithfully today, get filled with joy over that. Joy is a really countercultural thing right now. We live in a culture that's angry, that's toxic, that's increasingly bitter. If you're in Christ and you feel like the culture's slipping away, don't give in to bitterness. Don't just get angry over that. Don't give in to bitterness. Don't go looking for the way things used to be. Christianity is a faith lived in the present with a hope for the future. Live with joy that you are God's own. And if you live with joy, if you and I live with joy, what's the natural result? Peter fills that out for us next. If we live with joy, the natural result is that we're going to live on mission. So second, if you want to live faithfully, live with joy that bursts forth into mission. Look again at verse 9, now especially the second half of it. Peter says, you Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever asked why you're saved? 
Like God did not have to save you or me or any of us. Why are we saved? Well, this verse gives us an answer. So that you and I may proclaim God's excellencies. That's the amazing things God's done. Principally here, the gospel, what he's done for us in Christ. In other words, you and I aren't saved for ourselves. The Christian life does not merely consist of coming to a building once a week and sitting in a comfy blue chair, as great as they are. You and I are not saved to keep our faith to ourselves, to never talk about it with family or friends. As culture becomes increasingly hostile, I know it can be tempting to do that, to kind of keep your faith private. But I want you to see if you do that, you're really missing out on a lot of joy. In the mid-20th century, there was a British missionary by the name of Leslie Newbigin who served in India for many decades, and he wrote about this really well. So I don't often read long quotes, uh, but this is a good one. If you're a note taker, if you want to snap a picture on your phone, uh, this is a great quote about the relationship between joy and mission. And Newbigin says this, there has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. In other words, yes, Jesus did command us to go make disciples. He's saying that's absolutely true. Yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? Mission begins with an explosion of joy, Newbigin writes, and I love that. You see in the book of Acts, when the gospel goes to Samaria, it says there was much joy in that city. You see it in the women who first proclaimed the resurrection of Christ uh, after they visited his tomb. Mission begins with an explosion of joy. Isn't that great, or at least doesn't it sound great? But I think if many of us are honest, this whole proclamation thing Peter talks about in verse 9, that you may proclaim God's excellencies, that might also sound a bit intimidating, or maybe even to some of us off-putting. We live in a society today where religion has gone from the realm of public facts and public truths and been sequestered into this kind of narrow realm of private truths. It might be true for you, but who's to say it's true for me? And none of us wants the beliefs of others imposed on us. None of us wants others' beliefs shoved down their throat. And if that's where you're at this morning, I get it. That's where I'm at too. I don't want that either. And on top of that, we've got another problem in the church. And it's that, frankly, the way many of us have seen what Peter calls proclamation, or what I think we might call evangelism, this isn't just like preaching a sermon he's talking about. This is just everyday conversations. The way many of us have seen evangelism practiced hasn't always helped matters. To the point that even the word evangelism, I think even in church circles sometimes, has become a little bit of like a hush-hush thing nowadays. And many past modes of evangelism are out of step with where we're at today. So I want you to just do a thought experiment with me for a second. When you hear the word evangelism, what pops into your mind? Perhaps it's someone standing on a street corner with a cardboard sign and a megaphone. Or maybe it's 
someone approaching total strangers on the sidewalk or across the street at Gurney Mills, handing out tracts but forgoing a relationship or a conversation. Perhaps it's a billboard on the side of I-94 warning about the dangers of hell and giving a phone number to call. Perhaps it's a Christian celebrity preaching in a stadium to thousands, or maybe it's an apologetics debate on YouTube where you get to see this Christian intellectual hopefully just destroy the arguments of some atheist or something. At least hopefully, that's the result, we hope. None of those things, if I'm honest, are particularly appealing to me even as a pastor, but I also don't think that any of those are in the mind of what Peter's thinking about in this passage. Many of those things would be outside even the realm of possibility for him. What if instead the proclamation that Peter talks about evangelism could look more like it did in the life of Jesus? What did Jesus do? He shared meals. Jesus was the master because he didn't have a house of inviting himself into other people's homes. Hey, I'll be coming over for dinner tonight. It was sharing a meal. It was practicing hospitality. It was inviting the outsider in. He went to those on the margins of society and loved them not as they should be, but as they were, and invited them into life-giving relationship with him. And so we don't have time this morning to get into all the ins and outs of what I think biblical, relational, healthy evangelism can look like in our day. I want to simply and shamelessly invite you, though, to our first Friday's event in August. It's going to be all about this. It's all going to be about evangelism and what it can look like today. We've got another First Fridays coming up just this coming week, this Friday in July, where we'll also tackle really relevant topics. Evangelism, if you and I are honest, I think is an area where most of us need to grow. I know I need to grow in this. Actually, the August First Fridays is about evangelism. I'm going to be talking on that one, and I assigned it to myself so that I can work on growing in this. It's estimated that less than 5% of churches in America grow by means of conversions or evangelism. Less than 5%. Not by transfer growth, not by just shifting Christians from one church to another, but by actually people coming to faith. But you and I are saved to live on mission, and the fields are ripe for the harvest. Over 40% of people in Gurney, Illinois, check themselves as having no religious affiliation whatsoever. Not Catholic, not Protestant, not Buddhist, not Muslim, just nothing. The fields are ripe for harvest. So if you want to live faithfully in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture, live with joy that burst forth into mission. But that alone won't be sufficient. It's not today, but it also wasn't in the first century. You and I also need to live in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, we have to live in step with the truths we proclaim. So third, in order to live faithfully, third, live as a counterculture. Live as a counterculture. Look back verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, again, those on the outside, keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Christianity is meant to be a distinct, separated, different, just looks different, counterculture. Like I said, the 60s did great on the idea of a counterculture, just didn't always hit Jesus with that. 
Some of Peter's original hearers, you see, were tempted to assimilate into the surrounding culture. That's why he tells them these things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. If people weren't doing that, he wouldn't have to tell them, but he's saying, Christians, you should look distinct. You need to have a different ethic than those around you. The way you approach sex needs to be different. The way you approach politics, the way you approach money, it needs to be different. Don't live by the same moral standards. Verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. In other words, let everyone see the way of life you're characterized by. And then verse 11, zoom in here with me for just a moment on just two words. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles. Sit with me on those two words for a second, sojourners, exiles. What I want you to know is those two words, as Peter's using them here, are essentially synonyms, okay? They basically mean the same thing. So if you're a bit of a Bible geek or a Bible nerd, uh, when you hear the word exile, exile, you might be tempted to think of the Old Testament, again, the exile in Babylon. That's not quite what Peter's doing here. The word exile just basically means the same thing here as a sojourner. It's a foreigner or a resident alien. It's someone from one country who temporarily is living in a different one temporarily living in a different country. So for you and I, if we're sojourners and exiles, what does that mean? It means we're meant to draw our way of life primarily from heaven, not from earth. Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are citizens primarily of another kingdom. In a couple of days, uh, this is 4th of July week, we'll celebrate our nation's independence. And I want you to know, uh, as a pastor, that that's something that's okay for Christians to happily do. I will happily celebrate it. And so, if you've served our country in the past, or if you serve our country today, I want to say thank you. I'm grateful for that. We are grateful for that. I also want all of us to remember this week, especially this week, that we're sojourners and exiles, though that our primary allegiance is always heavenly, not earthly, that we can't assimilate the values of American culture or any other culture wholesale. In the past, the church has sometimes hindered our witness by becoming too tied to specific cultural agendas and baptizing them in the name of Christ. I don't know if you've heard of the phenomenon of deconstruction. Uh, Basically what it means is that a lot of, especially younger people, my age and younger today, are deconstructing their faith. They're taking the faith they grew up with and kind of tearing it down um, deconstructing it. And sometimes, oftentimes, this has happened because in the faith they've received, to be a Christian has seemed almost identical or synonymous with voting for a particular political party. Unfortunately, uh, some who are deconstructing just kind of swing the opposite way and make Christianity all of a sudden identical with holding to the other side of the culture war, with voting for the opposite political party, or with just discarding all traditional Christian notions. What I want us to see is as sojourners and exiles, Christianity is not identical with any earthly political or cultural agenda, and it never has been, and it never will be. And if you see it as just so distinct that you can't possibly conceive of it apart from those things, you've got to disentangle your faith, because Christianity should look different from everyone else. And to be honest, it's going to confuse everyone. (laughs) Look at verse 12 for a second. Check this out. He says, Christians are called evildoers there. They speak against you as evildoers. And yet the very next clause, they see that Christians are doing good deeds. 
It's like these people on the outside, they see, hey, Christians, you're doing a bunch of marvelous things. You're doing wonderful good deeds, works of charity. But by the way, you're still evildoers. Make it make sense, right? There's this paradoxical thing going here because Christianity didn't fit neatly into cultural boxes and it still won't today. Take just a few examples. Christians, I think, should care about the oppressed. Jesus was oppressed. Um, The people of Israel in the Old Testament, the Bible says, were oppressed. We should care about justice. We should care about ending racism. At the same time, Christians should care about the unborn, about all life from womb to tomb. We should care about a traditional sexual ethic, that the way God designed sex to best be experienced is between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenantal union. Now, even as I say those almost uncomfortably tangible examples, some of them are going to sound evil, evil doers, Peter's word here, evil to one side of the culture currently, and some of those are going to sound evil to the other side of our culture. In other words, if we're faithfully following Jesus, there's going to be people on both sides and sometimes even people within the American church who have capitulated to cultural agendas who are going to see you as an evil doer. And so we've got to remember we are sojourners, we're exiles. We have to look different. If we want to live faithfully as Christians today, we have to be a distinctive counterculture that supports the gospel we proclaim, that lives in step with the truth of the gospel. But now, finally, how do we persevere in that? Because that can all sound... A little exhausting. I mean, being called, uh, what Peter says here, being called an evildoer, that's not my idea of a good day. I take it it's not any of your idea of a good day either. How do we persevere in living faithfully even if opposition hems in all around us? The way we persevere, fourth and lastly, is this. We live with the end in mind. If you want to keep going, we have to live with the end in mind. Look back at verse 12. Peter says, keep your conduct, Christians, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of visitation. This term, day of visitation, is speaking of the final day, the day of judgment when Christ will return and right every wrong. And on that day, everyone will be made to glorify God. And we persevere in living faithfully by keeping that end in mind. Look at one other verse from earlier in Peter's letter, chapter 1, verse 13. He writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation of Jesus Christ, that's Christ's second coming again. It's the same thing as the day of visitation. Don't just set your hope there, Peter says. Set your hope fully there. In other words, don't hope in anything else primarily. There is no other object worthy of you or my ultimate hope. And anything else you put your ultimate hope in is going to let you down. Don't set your hopes on earthly programs. Don't set them primarily on taking back the culture. Don't set them primarily on being accepted by the culture. Don't set your hope on getting back to the way things once were. Instead, Look forward and set your hope, Peter says, fully on Christ's second coming. Peter doesn't promise Christians, did you notice, that things are going to get better. If you remember that theme of suffering, he never departs from it. 
what he does do is reorient the eyes of our hearts. So if you're a Christian this morning, let the eyes of your heart be reoriented, the eyes of your hope, onto the future fully when Christ will return. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, or maybe you're struggling to find hope, know that Jesus offers a new and better way Today, you can begin following him. He offers free forgiveness, free mercy, free grace, and again, a hope that is unshakable. I think, honestly, the only thing that's going to get you through this life without shaking or moving, the only stable hope you and I can find. There's a scene uh, from the movie Lord of the Rings. Those who know me know I'm a little bit of a Lord of the Rings nerd. But if you've seen, it or, uh, seen those movies or read it, the men of Rohan, this nation of horse riders, they're battling at an ancient fortress called Helm's Deep. They're battling for their very survival against these armies of darkness, and they're hemmed in on every side. They've been fighting all night. They're making their desperate last stand as they're about to be defeated. And then they remember the words of this kind of mysterious counselor and wizard figure, Gandalf, that he told them. And he said, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And just then they remember, what day is it? It's the fifth day. And they look up and they look to the east. And right over the crest of this distant hill comes Gandalf riding with an army of thousands. And they see, just as their hope was fading, that their salvation has drawn near. And so, church, you might be battle-weary now, but set your hope fully on that day when Christ is coming back. Set your hope fully, as Peter says, on the grace to be brought to you at Christ's return. One day, every wrong will be made right. Everything sad will come untrue. So how do we live faithfully today? If you feel like the culture's hemming in around you, how do you and I live faithfully? We've got to live with joy, countercultural joy. Let that joy burst forth into mission. Be a distinctive counterculture. Don't look like everyone else and be okay with that. Live as a counterculture. And finally, keep your eyes on the end. Live with the end in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you move your words uh, deep into our heart this morning, Lord? Would we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at Christ's second coming? Lord, turn our hearts to you, turn our eyes toward you, turn our affections and our emotions and our hopes toward you. Lord, I pray that today we would experience the renewal of your spirit afresh as we come to follow you and to live with joy on the mission that you've given us. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.